This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. When you hook up with those organizations and listen to them and function in a partnership with them, not staring down upon them, not saying you need to do this, but really viewing them as equal partners. And in many cases, the senior partner in terms of how we should approach a a certain community, I think then we can make real advances as physicians and nurses and clinicians that are concerned about a specific uh, disease or sets of diseases. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, presented by Gastrologix, your GI-specific group purchasing and business development partner. I'm your host, Kevin Harlan, and I'm very excited for today's conversation. It is my great honor and pleasure to be joined today by Dr. Linda Ray Murray, who has focused her career on serving the medically underserved and working to achieve health equity. Dr. Murray received her medical degree and Master's of Public Health from the University of Illinois, Chicago, where she is now a professor. Dr. Murray is a member of the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board. She served as Bureau Chief of the Chicago Department of Health and as Chief Medical Officer for the Cook County Department of Public Health and Cook County Health and Hospital System. Dr. Murray is also a past president of the American Public Health Association an organization of which I'm very proud to be a member. Dr. Murray, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Oh, it's wonderful being here. Dr. Murray, I read recently that you are known for saying public health is everything. Tell me about your path to becoming a physician and a public health advocate. Well, really, I had no plans to be a physician when I was in high school and even as I entered college. And it's only when I was in college when a classmate of mine who this African-American woman whose parents were a physician uh, cornered me during one vacation and told me how few black physicians there were in the country. Um, and, and I was shocked. And so I made a decision that this was something that I could do uh, that requires skill and would allow me to still fight for social justice uh, causes. And when I entered medical school, of course, I had no idea what really they did in medical school. And I thought they paid attention to things that made people sick. And so you can imagine my surprise in the first year sitting through lecture after lecture after lecture about microscopic important things, but not about the real world. And we had one lecture from Dr. Carno, who is an occupational physician and a pulmonologist, who actually came in and talked about diseases and problems and illnesses people get at work. And I said, ah, that's medicine. That's what I need to be about. So I actually thought, as most people I think do, that normal things in life, what kind of job you have, what kind of family you live in, what kind of neighborhood you live in, what's the air like, uh, how's the traffic, uh, the things that now we call social determinants of health really are what makes people healthy or sick. Um, And so I was really sort of went through it backwards. I thought medicine taught you about public health. And I only found out when I was in medical school that you actually had to do special training to understand that. That's very interesting. That reminds me um, when I was in public health school myself, I'm recalling the definition at the time of public health being the the first line of defense between humankind and disease. What do you think are the biggest challenges in public health today? Well, ignoring COVID-19, which obviously is a major emergency right now for public health globally, 
the biggest challenges we have, we've always had in medicine and public health, and that is how do we maximize, how do we make sure that most people on the planet are as healthy as possible? Uh, and what that means for us, I think, right now is we have to address climate change first. That's an existential crisis for everyone uh, on the planet. And climate change, not in a narrow sense uh, that often Americans think of it, but as a reflection of how the whole world is set up in terms of our economy. Why do we have huge gaps and differences and inequities in, in income, in wealth, in advantages that people have? Why are some people in the world starving and other people are suffering from obesity? So, um, so I think that the problems we have in public health are, in fact, world problems. How do we make sure we have peace? How do we make sure that the, the earth begins to heal? And how do we make sure that we as human beings, social animals that we are, can really set up structures that are honest and fair and just? And much of what you've just described is that, is that line of defense on so many levels. Across the country, state and local leaders are declaring structural racism a public health crisis or emergency. And Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Ayanna Presley have introduced national legislation. This is a great start because these efforts will hopefully provide resources to address the problem. What else do we need to address racism and decrease disparities in healthcare? Well, I, I think the points you've brought up are so critical. What do we mean by structural racism? It's tossed around now. I think the first step for this country, for the United States of America, is to understand our history, to really take the blinders off and really come to grips in an honest way with the history of the country and how it was built. And that not only means looking at slavery and the structural racism that's been built up over many generations and centuries really against black Americans, but to also look at our racist attitudes toward our indigenous populations, toward uh, Mexicans and Central American folks and other people all over Asians, Chinese. So it really means coming to grips with an ideology that really tried to say that biologically, white people were put on top. And, and so the first lesson is there's really no such thing as white people. Race is a social structure, as we say today. It's, it's an imaginary structure. To think that people's pigment somehow signifies something meaningful is a mistake. But nonetheless, we have economic political systems built on that. The United States is one example, but there are many other examples around the world. So it means coming to grips with that history. The second thing I think that's probably the most important thing for me as a physician is to understand that really these, these and I, th I hope most Americans appreciate this at the end of this year after being in quarantine in various stages of lockdown for, for a year, um, human beings are social animals. And things that happen to us when we're in five years old or 10 years old can scar us for the rest of our life. Uh, being separated from each other is certainly damaging. And so when we really consider what we need to be healthy, it means we have to have healthy neighborhoods, healthy communities. We have to have basic trust in each other as human beings. And that means we have to make the changes that the Congress people you mentioned are trying to make to make sure we have universal medical care, to make sure we have quality education for all of our children as half of them are in lockdown and doing Zoom classes now, um, it means that they have to have jobs that have some meaning and that have dignity and that pay people enough to live simply. I like uh, Michael Marmot had a, had a saying once uh, when he was talking. He said, you know, if you're old, you know, not only should you have a pension that's good enough to pay for your rent and food and shelter, you need to be able to buy your grandchildren a birthday present or a Christmas present. So, so I, I think that most people want these basic, simple things. And it's a question of understanding that we have the wealth in this country and throughout the world to accomplish this. 
In gastroenterology, we see a lot of disparities in colorectal cancer screening. Disparities are driven by socioeconomic status and differences in access to early detection and treatment. Blacks and Hispanics are less likely to get prompt abnormal screening follow-up and tragically more likely to be diagnosed with late-stage cancer. As you know, March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Project Brotherhood in Chicago used an innovative approach to health education. Tell me about that initiative. Oh, that was a, that was a wonderful initiative and, and, and surprising even, even to me. Uh, Project Brotherhood uh, was a program that was set up within the confines of our public uh, health system at Cook County Health, um, and it created a space for men, for black men, um, in the evenings. It was a special clinic uh, where only men were seen, and they did other things other than just see the doctor. They had discussion groups and, and history lessons and fatherhood classes, et cetera. And one year they decided, uh, in, in uh, conjunction with the Illinois Cancer uh, group here to try to increase screening for colon rectal cancer. At that point, they were using the uh, fecal uh, hemocloak cards. And so they brought in a group of barbers from around the South Side, gave them basic training and what colon rectal cancer was, what the symptoms are, how you might prevent it, what the screening mechanisms were, and then stocked these barber shops with the little colon, fecal colon rectal cards. And it was set up where they were specially stamped. And they could come in and bring those cards to our clinic, even if they weren't a registered patient. I think they got a little keychain or something for doing that. And then we would uh, do the tests. And obviously, if they needed more workup, uh, we, w- we were able to bring them in. Uh, but they actually had a higher return on these fecal occult cards than our regular patients did. Um, and so that, that, to me, was really surprising. The, the secret with the Project Brotherhood program was you had black men talking to other black men in a trusted setting. Uh, the, the black barbershop is an important cultural institution in our community. Uh, that's where the brothers get together and talk about all kinds of things. And so uh, they were able to hear the messages from the barbers. Uh, we had staff that went out and visited the barbershops, kept them supplied, did refreshers for the barber. And I think there's a lesson here for all of clinical medicine. When you involve people, when, when, the, when the medical workforce looks like the population that they take care of, you automatically have more trust. And more importantly, you can make revisions in, in how you approach people. Um, I also think the uh, big publicity, I'm forgetting our, 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 uh, the, the Black Panther's real name uh, with the Black Panther and other high-profile black men, that have recently come out and said that they are dealing with with colon cancer. I think that also helps people think this is something we can do something about. Um, but it's a very it's a very difficult process. Uh, the cancer, as you know, uh, can hide for for a long time. By the time you have clinical symptoms, it's pretty often pretty advanced, and so it does mean having an awareness of this problem, being alert to the problem, and trying to aggressively approach the problem. Um, so in my own personal family, uh, uh, my mother had uh, colon cancer uh, and died from it in her 80s. Um, but to, to make that clear to members of my family that we may be at slightly higher risk for this, you need to be a- aggressive with getting screened for it, you need to have a different kind of screening if you have a record and history of it in your family. These are messages that need to get out. And so using black churches and beauty shops and barber shops or wherever communities gather it becomes important. That's very interesting. In fact, here in Maryland, Capital Digestive Care, the clinical GI practice that I'm affiliated with, we 
had a partnership with the University of Maryland Center for Health Equities and Cigna Foundation to do a, a very similar program as to what you were just describing uh, in barbershops, uh, black barbershops and black salons, providing the education for the of obviously the very same reasons that you just articulated and with similar results, uh, very, very positive results. And then I, then uh, as, a, as a person who practiced uh, in, in our Cook County, in our public system for so many decades, I would be remiss if I, we have to have universal access to high quality medical care. So in our county system, we struggled very hard, but we really at one point had a backlog of 10,000 screening colonoscopies and then a backlog of several thousand diagnostic colonoscopies because we literally didn't have enough resources and staff to do them. Uh, and we had to uh, finally try to get help from the private sector to get rid of that backlog. Uh, but, but I know myself, I have taken care of people who I really fought hard to get diagnostic colonoscopies for. Uh, and by the time we finally were able to get them, they did have advanced stages of colon cancer. So even though outreach is important, and uh, dealing with the traditional mistrust that people, especially people of color, have toward the medical community, perfectly legitimate. Uh, if we don't back that up with universal medical care, uh, then, then we're just whistling in the wind. And so I think that that's a critical component, not the only thing, but a critical component toward addressing health inequities in the United States. The American healthcare systems, economics gets in the way of providing services to the underserved. We need to walk the talk more. And my hope is that we really truly will be embracing a, a greater commitment to doing what is right, um, which is not turning a blind eye to those who need it for economic reasons. What can individual practices do to connect with local program and support community efforts to increase colorectal cancer screenings? There's, there's so many great things I think that individual group practices can do. Uh, the first thing is just, the first thing I would suggest is reach out to your colleagues. Those are the people you know best. Reach out to physicians from those communities uh, that are in your community. If, you, you may not have GI specialists, for example, but often you will, but you have primary care providers. So the first thing is to reach out to them and try to partner with them in terms of activities that they're doing. Um, the second thing, depending on, on what you're associated with, for example, if you're associated with a major medical center, public or private uh, in your community, pay attention to what those organizations are doing, what the, what the hospital may be doing around uh, charity care or around community benefits. Um, and then, of course, reach out to, to the institutions that are in that community church organizations, the fraternity sororities, uh, maybe it's a, a softball league um, in, in a certain community, and ask them about these issues. Oftentimes, these organizations, if they're dominated by lay people, they may not realize the big disparities that exist between the black community and the white community, say, for colon rectal cancer. And so once you let them know about that, then they're eager to, to partner with health uh, professionals and figure out a way to increase awareness in the community and increase screenings or what, whatever else needs to be appropriate. I think the key lesson here is to understand this is a, should be at least an equal partnership. Don't come in all high and mighty thinking you know what to do. Come in and listen to what the community thinks it needs and what the community is concerned about and then try to figure out what pieces of those concerns your, your practice is best in a position to help with. 
making sure that you have time for charity care. This used to be a tradition. Uh, certainly uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, it was traditional for physicians in this country to do uh, a, a certain amount of care free. Um, I think we've lost a little bit of that tradition. So making sure that you're taking Medicaid, making sure you're partnering up with other free clinics that may exist in your area or other programs that allow you to do, for example, a certain number of colonoscopies a month uh, for free. That kind of activity, I think, is really important. Uh, and I think that all of us as physicians have to get better at communicating with lay people. And so it's good to practice your skills. There's certainly lots of white physicians that are great in a, in a black church basement uh, talking about these kind of things. It's a, it's a skill that can be learned. Just do it with humility and understand that most of teaching is listening. That's terrific. Thank you. You're also involved in the University of Illinois Cancer Center Bench to Community Program. How did Project Brotherhood influence that program? Well, the, the uh, Illinois, the UIC Illinois Cancer uh, Institute was really under the leadership until relatively recently of Dr. Robert Wynn, uh, African-American pulmonologist and oncologist. And he really had a vision for the cancer center at the University of Illinois being a cancer center that was expert in community engagement, being a community-driven cancer center. And he really felt that excellent research could be done, including bench research involving the community. And so, uh, therefore, the UIC Cancer Center reached out to a number of groups, Project Brotherhood being among them. And since black men are often considered extremely hard to reach, uh, their expertise is really working uh, in the black community with, with uh, other groups. But they've really played a major role in terms of it on being on advisory committees and doing training for researchers at the university. You know, how do you speak with people? How, how do you, when you go out to a church group, what do you say? Uh, how do you organize what you do? Um, and so they, they continue to play a role uh, as advisors uh, with the Cancer Center and, and continue to help them with community engagement around prostate cancer and, and other colon rectal cancer and other kinds of cancers that they're concerned about. Um, and I think there are many organizations, uh, I know in, in the uh, Latinx community in the Chicago area, the Polish community, Chinese American community, they're community-based organizations that are devoted to uh, that community, to making sure that community gets the right things that they need, that they continue their cultural traditions. When you hook up with those organizations and listen to them and function in a partnership with them, not staring down upon them, not saying you need to do this, but really viewing them as equal partners, and in many cases, the senior partner in terms of how we should approach a, a certain community, I think then we can make real advances as physicians and nurses and clinicians that are concerned about a specific uh, disease or sets of diseases. Wonderful insights. Thank you. What advice do you have for young people who are considering a career in medicine or public health? My advice for that never changes. Um, you know, and I, and I think I will say this, there are many pipeline programs that exist in this country, not as many as I would like and not as well funded, but many pipeline programs that exist. And, and I don't think we should ask a ninth grader to figure out, do they want to be a GI specialist? Do they want to be a lawyer? Do they do they want to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a microbiologist? We have to provide quality education in all of the fields to all of our children. There is no reason why somebody that graduates from college shouldn't have a good, solid, basic understanding of what we call STEM sciences, even if they end up being an art teacher. So that's the first thing. I think, I think the notion that science and information about science, for example, how vaccines work, anyone who is a parent 
ought to have a basic understanding of how vaccines work. Because that's one of the things parents have to do for is get their children vaccinated. So I think as Americans, we have a low bar for thinking that normal, ordinary people should understand science. So that that's a cultural problem I would like to see eliminated. But what I tell young people is take a broad array of courses, take as much science and math as you can, take as much history and literature as you can, because to be a good practicing clinician, you have to know history and literature and poetry. You have to know, know it all. Um, so, so have a broad-based education. I do think this is somewhere, something else that practicing physicians and groups can help with. Uh, more and more students are asked for experience shadowing people uh, and for experience uh, uh, working in offices. So um, if you have a group practice, you know, inviting some, you don't have to have a, doesn't have to be for five years, inviting uh, some high school students in, in the summertime and spending a couple of weekends with some high school students or even junior high students, and obviously maybe more formal things for college students. This is a way to let young people figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it. There are many things that we can do as clinicians that may not produce a doctor, but will produce a health educator, will produce an epidemiologist. Uh, if we're willing just to spend a little time doing that, uh, and I, I think that that is a great uh, uh, thing that we should all aim for. It's something that I've been spending more and more time with, really spending time with the undergraduate students in particular in college on on what they want to do with their with their lives. I thought about post-baccalaureate pre-med work three times in my life, uh, as late as when I was 42 years old. Um, and there's something very, very, very special about what physicians do and and what you do, Dr. Murray. So I can't thank you enough for joining me today and for all that you do in service of the medically underserved and working to achieve health equity. Thank you, Kevin. It was great talking to you today. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.